for. If you're using a pew Bible, you should find that on page 614. This is an appropriate picture because God does talk about the mountains in Isaiah chapter 54, that his promises are steadfast like the mountains, which I'm sure would have been the most immovable thing that they could see in their world, I would say in our world as well. Uh, Buildings come and go, nations rise and fall, but those mountains have been there for as long as anybody can remember. So Isaiah chapter 54, I'm going to pay particular attention to start with verse 10, a verse we looked at last week and a verse which I've already referenced. It reads like this, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So we're going to talk quite a bit about covenants today. In this particular case, we're talking about a covenant of peace which shall not be removed. I'm going to give you a statement which is packed full of meaning, and it's going to guide much of our discussion for a number of minutes. The statement reads like this. All of God's redemptive purposes... And all of God's prior covenants have inevitably, necessarily, been leading to this important covenant. So, we'll talk about some definitions of what I'm talking about. In the covenants that God has given previously, we're going to look at some of those. They've all been leading, necessarily, to this covenant of peace. And the bridge from those earlier covenants to this covenant of peace is Christ. It's his person and his work. And it is only his person and work that will get us from the earlier covenants to this covenant of peace. If there is no Messiah, if there is no Son of God made man, we will never arrive at the covenant of peace. First of all, let me talk about his redemptive purposes. When I'm talking about God's redemptive purposes, I'm talking about his purpose to save, his purpose to forgive, his purpose to get sinners who are dead in trespasses and sin into the kingdom of heaven. Those are his redemptive purposes, his gracious purposes. If God doesn't do it, we're lost. And we're quite happy being lost. Secondly, when I'm talking about covenants, I'm talking about agreements. Agreements that God has entered into. Contracts that God has entered into. Binding contracts. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we work through this idea of covenants in Scripture. But that's the statement we're working off of. Prior covenants leading to this covenant. Let's build. What are the results of this covenant of peace? Verses 10 to 14, these are verses now we've read for two weeks, but I'll read just these verses to start. Verses 10 to 14 tell us the results of a covenant of peace. They read like this. The mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. 
All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. So the results of this covenant of peace, if I were to summarize them, it would be steadfast love and compassion, the establishment of a glorious city, children taught by the Lord, great peace for those children, righteousness is established, and they are free from oppression and fear. Those are some pretty lofty claims. Those are some pretty lofty results of this covenant of peace. And so I would say the outcome is certain because it rests upon two things that we've discovered in Isaiah. The outcome is certain because, number one, the Lord's, because of the Lord's own promise, because of his own namesake. That was a concept we saw, especially in chapter 48, verses 9 to 11, where I think three times the Lord says, it's for my sake I'm doing this. My sake. Because of his oath, because of his character. Because of that, this outcome is certain. It rests on the character and promise of God. Secondly, the outcome is certain because it rests upon the success of the Lord's servant, Christ Jesus, which is out of Isaiah chapter 53, his sacrificial death. This all kind of reminds me of a a week, or I don't remember, two weeks ago, I think, when we talked about Revelation chapter 5, and, and there was the scroll written on both sides, and who can open the scroll? And if nobody can open the scroll, these redemptive purposes aren't brought to completion. If nobody opens the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, there is no steadfast love and compassion. There is no establishment of an eternal city. There, there are not going to be children taught by the Lord in peace. There's not going to be righteousness established if the scroll isn't opened. But the scroll will be opened. Not because it depends on any man or any prophet or any pastor or any church. The scroll is opened because of the servant, a substitute servant, who stands in and accomplishes what is required for the scroll to be opened. So that all of God's promises relating to this covenant of peace are and will be realized. Because it depends on God's character. The covenant of peace is elsewhere known in scripture as the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, this covenant of peace is known as the everlasting covenant, especially, it's several places in the Bible, but especially in Ezekiel, chapters 16, 32, 36, 37. So it goes by different names. It's the same concept. It's the same covenant. It's the same culmination. Other times, many other times in Scripture, uh, characteristics of this covenant are detailed, they're, they're written, they're, they're described, they're given to God's people, but it's not necessarily named, now this is the covenant of peace. 
or this is the new covenant, or this is the everlasting covenant. It's clear it's not uh, some lesser covenant. It's the culminating covenant. And many places, Old and New Testament tell you, uh, this is what it's going to look like when it comes. One of those examples, if I stick with Isaiah, because that's the text we're actually in, is Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 15 to 21. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you this from the New International Version because we're not breaking it down in a lot of detail. I want you to make sure and get the big picture of this passage. So I'm going to show it to you on the screen. You are welcome to look in your own Bible and your own version at Isaiah chapter 59 verses 15 to 21. But it reads like this. Now this is describing the new covenant. The covenant of peace. It starts off like this. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. So chapter 59 starts up a problem. It's kind of where we started last week when I started teaching that the world has a sin problem. Well, just like I told you, the world has a sin problem. Ethnic groups, cultures, nations, me, you, we all have a sin problem. The Lord looks and he says, there's no truth to be found. And justice is lacking. And those who shun evil, we'll call them the righteous remnant, they are persecuted. So we've got a problem starting off in chapter 59 and verse 15. Now, if we need to work towards a solution, it looks like this. Starts off verse 16. He, the Lord, saw that there was no one. He, the Lord, was appalled that there was no one to intervene. We've got a problem and nobody's doing anything about it. And the Bible describes the Lord as being appalled. He's astonished. Truth is nowhere to be found. Justice is lacking. Nobody's reflecting the righteous character of God. Why isn't somebody doing something? And who does the Lord expect to do something? Answer, Israel Israel are the people that he selected, made the people of his choice, gave them the covenants, gave them the promises, gave them the patriarchs, gave them the blessings. Israel is the original servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 42. But you'll remember, because this has all happened this year in Isaiah, Israel's blind and deaf. So Israel is, is meant to do something, but they've got the same problem. Israel's blind and deaf. No matter how many advantages God has given them, they're blind and deaf too. So how will the problem be solved? The problem won't be solved by God giving more promises to men. The problem won't be solved by God saying, maybe you don't understand what I expect. I will write it out on tablets of stone for you. I will spell it out to you and it will be repeated from one generation to the next. 600 laws. This is what I expect. No matter how explicit God makes it, that's not going to solve the sin problem. So how is the sin problem solved? The fact that truth is nowhere to be found, that the righteous are oppressed, and that there is no justice. Here's how the problem is solved. So his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. And the helmet of salvation. 
head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. The sin problem is solved by God himself. If he doesn't solve it, it doesn't get solved and we all perish. God himself works salvation. That's why the promises God makes, however lofty they may be, are certain to be fulfilled because God is the one that sees to it that they get done. God isn't depending on Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Elijah or Isaiah or John the Baptist or the 12 apostles. God is depending on or he's, he's staked his, his promises on the person of himself, of his own son, who lived a perfectly obedient life, who died even a, a, a death on a cross and was exalted on the third day. That's why the promises are guaranteed and fulfilled, because God is the one that solves the problem. The solution looks like this. According to what they have done, so he, the Lord, will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. So when God solves the sin problem, he's going to bring repay with wrath those that are unbelieving. Those that uh, spurn his mercy, spurn his grace, spurn his goodness, the kindness of God which leads to repentance. He will repay with wrath to the enemies, but from the west to the east... There will be those that fear and revere and glorify God for this great salvation that he has brought. This is all out of Isaiah chapter 59, which I think we'll get there this summer. It goes on, maybe, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. It's all because of the Redeemer. It's all because God solves the problem himself in sending the Son. And then verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. Verse 21 points back to 18, 19, and 20. What is my covenant? What is this covenant of peace? This covenant of peace is, I will repay with wrath uh, to my enemies. And from west to east, men will fear the name of the Lord and will revere his glory. That's all part of the covenant of peace. What is the covenant of peace? The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins. That's all the covenant of peace. And it is sure, so that God then concludes with verse 22, or maybe it's still verse 21, my spirit who is in on you, my spirit who is on you, and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forevermore, says the Lord. He's saying you can count on it. The wicked will be punished, the righteous will be delivered and rewarded. You can count on it. You can repeat this from generation to generation. However long it takes, it is certain because God is the one who oathed it. And God is the one that's going to see it through to completion. It will happen because it depends entirely on God and not upon any man. Now let me give you a rudimentary understanding of God's unconditional covenant. 
covenants. This is rudimentary because we could spend a lot of time talking about covenants. But this is as it pertains to this big redemptive plan that God has. I'm going to pick out the most important covenants, and uh, hopefully this will help you to grasp. It'll, I've got a diagram that I, I think will help, or at least I hope will help, you grasp God's covenantal plan of redemption. Let me start with the word unconditional. The word unconditional means a sovereign and gracious act of God whereby he unilaterally and unconditionally obligates himself to fulfill certain promises and enact certain blessings for the recipient or recipients. It's unconditional, meaning it entirely depends on God. That's the word unilateral. Uh, Ben writes a unicycle. Unicycle means that he's depending on one wheel to hold him up. A unilateral covenant is it's all on me, says God. This isn't a partnership. This isn't like you do your part, I'll do my part. A unconditional covenant is it's all on me. I swear it. I am oathing by my own namesake. And because of the success of my servant, the son, the eternal son, Christ, Jesus, because of that, it's unilateral and it's unconditional. Not every covenant in the Bible is unconditional, but there are certain that are most important that are unconditional. Number one, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, 13, 15, 17. God makes promises to Abraham entirely dependent on the Lord. The success or failure, the obedience of Abraham is not going to stop this covenant from taking place. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You will have a son. You will bear a seed. Those are promises God makes to Abraham. There's any number of promises in those different chapters. It's entirely dependent on God. On God's own character, God's own name. Second covenant important covenant that I want to draw attention to is the Davidic covenant, promise made to David, covenant made cut with David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Psalm chapter 89, there's some other references, but that's as many as I could fit on one line comfortably. The Davidic covenant or promise God makes to David that it's not dependent on their obedience uh, or lack thereof. In fact, in Psalm 89 especially, it says, and even if your son is disobedient, I will not forsake you. This promise is guaranteed. This covenant is inevitable. It must be fulfilled. It is unilaterally going to be accomplished by my own good character. A covenant of a kingdom, a covenant of a dynasty, a covenant of a king who will reign on the throne forever. That's the second unconditional covenant that I want to draw your attention to. The third one is the new covenant. Or the covenant of peace. I don't need to give you references for that because that's where we're at. That's where we're at in Isaiah chapter 54. I gave you references from Jeremiah. It's called the new covenant. Ezekiel is called the everlasting covenant. So you've got those three covenants that are unconditional. Entirely dependent on God's character. On God's own promise. His gracious character. His gracious promise. Abraham isn't any more deserving than any other idolatrous person in Mesopotamia. But by God's grace, he was called out of idolatry and and God cut this covenant with him. 
There's so many ways I could go with this, but I'm trying to pace myself. There's one more covenant that's not unconditional, but it's probably the one that drives most of the Old Testament. It's the covenant that you know more about than any other covenant in certainly all of the Old Testament, and that one's called the Mosaic Covenant or the Law Covenant. But this is a conditional covenant. It's a temporary covenant. And this is as many references as I could fit comfortably on one line. You'll read about it's, uh, it's being temporary in Romans chapter 7 and 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it couldn't be any more explicit. Even what was inscribed on tablets of stone is a fading glory. Those are the Ten Commandments inscribed on tablets of stone. Temporary, comes alongside, impermanent. Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Hebrews chapters 8 to 10, all talk about the Mosaic Covenant as coming, as being temporary, as being conditional. So now we've got those four covenants. God's plan is for Gentiles to also enjoy the benefits and the blessings of these covenants. Covenants is in pink because I'm referencing the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant, the Covenant of Peace. All these covenants are made with Israel, but God intends for Gentiles to benefit from those covenants. We will profit by God making these covenants with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the Jewish forefathers. Gentiles will benefit from these covenants. At least that's the plan. So now it looks like this. Hopefully this, if this doesn't clear it up, uh, we're probably lost. It looks something like this. At the heart of this uh, diagram are God's unconditional covenants. The covenant with Abraham, covenant with David, the new covenant, the covenant of peace. Those covenants are made with, starting off with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Covenants are passed on to the nation of Israel. Abraham becomes the father of the Israelite nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob specifically. What is a Jew? What is an Israelite? He is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not a religious heritage more than it is an ethnic heritage. Uh, it's not just being a descendant of Abraham. Abraham had other children. But a, an Israelite is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They receive these unconditional covenants. But these unconditional covenants are also meant to profit the Gentiles. We're a little bit further out of the circle because the covenants weren't made with Gentiles. They were made with a particular people that God called to himself. And by blessing this particular people, it will be blessing for all the world. In you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So because God made a promise with Abraham, Gentiles stand ready to be blessed because of a covenant God made with Abraham. But we've got a problem. We've also got a conditional covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. And that Mosaic Covenant put a wall around those covenants of blessing. And one of these years, by the grace of God, I'm going to be in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, you're going to find out there is a wall of separation between all that God gave to the Jews and the Gentiles who are alienated and foreigners, and strangers, and they can't really get at these wonderful blessings because there's a wall placed around them. 
The only way a Gentile for all of the First Testament will ever get to those blessings of Abraham and David and the promise of a new covenant is a Gentile has to become a Jew. If he's a man, he has to be circumcised. Jew, male or female, they've got to be baptized into the Jewish faith. They've got to live by the laws of Moses. The only way through all of your Old Testament for a Gentile to to receive the benefits and the blessings of these central unconditional covenants is they've got to go through Moses. They've got to become essentially a proselyte. They've got to be a Jew. But the Bible tells me in Galatians that's only until Christ came. And when the Bible tells me it's only until Christ came, it doesn't mean until he was born. It doesn't mean until he was baptized. It means until he lived the perfect life of obedience, died on a cross, and rose from the grave. It's when he died on a cross that the temple and the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The old covenant had ended in that moment. So, in that moment, when Christ came, the covenant of law was removed by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He's reigning as king, and guess what? Gentiles now have access to the blessings, and they don't have to become a Jew. Acts chapter 15. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised and obey the laws of Moses to be saved? The Jerusalem council said, oh no. Saved by the grace of God. The old covenant's been removed. And so now we've got the church benefiting from these blessings of these unconditional covenants. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. In the same way, Christ took the cup after supper saying, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We're celebrating the new covenant when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. How can we do that without being Jews? How can we do that without being baptized into the Jewish faith? Because the wall's been removed. And now the church has access to the blessings of the new covenant. We celebrate them. We celebrate Christ as our King and as our Lord. We celebrate the blessing of God's Spirit being poured out on His church. Those are all new covenant blessings. All new covenant blessings. In fact, it's the church that's enjoying those new covenant blessings far more than Israel uh, that we've read about all through the Old Testament. But Romans tells me, One of these days, Israel is going to enjoy those new covenant blessings too. And when Israel enjoys them, what will that mean for Gentiles? If we're profiting now from their rejection, how will the church profit by their reception, their repentance in the new covenant? Chapter 54, then, we are seeing the great results of the servant's work, his death, burial, and resurrection. In chapter 55, we're going to see an invitation to respond to the servant's success. The Gentiles, a call is being issued in Isaiah chapter 55. There's no wall to keep you from enjoying the blessings of these unconditional covenants. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to go through Moses. You don't have to adopt a a Jewish religion and go to Jerusalem to a temple to worship. That wall's been removed and a call goes out. Anyone who's thirsty, come. We'll read that. Well, that's where we'll hopefully start next week, Isaiah chapter 55. But let's look at this in the, in the context of Isaiah chapter 54. I'm doing pretty good on time if I keep at it. So Isaiah chapter 54, we've got different images. Let's start with those first three verses. These different word pictures. 
Verse 1, chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have, have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So in those first three verses, the first image, what are you seeing in those three verses? The answer is what you're seeing is you're seeing a barren woman who suddenly is celebrating children and she's to enlarge her tent. That's, what, that's the first image in those first three verses. Does that sound familiar to you? Who do we know in Scripture who's a barren woman who celebrates the birth of a child and has lived in a tent? It's meant for you to be thinking about Sarah and Abraham, a barren woman Hopeless situation. She bears Isaac by the promise of God, and Abraham and Isaac live their entire lives in, tent, in a tent. Well, that barren woman in those first three verses is a picture of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 54. 50, in, in chapter 54 of Isaiah, Jerusalem is Sarah. She's the barren woman. She's, uh, she has no children. She's not enjoying the promise of God. Uh, She's not enjoying the blessing of God. She's the barren woman. But God is saying, he's giving them this image. Do you remember what I did with Sarah? Was anybody thinking that that could possibly be true, that a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, they lived longer in their day, granted, but that's still pretty old to be a parent for the first time. Sarah bears a child. And the point is this, Jerusalem, Israel, my people, I know you've fallen on hard times. I know it seems hopeless. I know it seems like I can't possibly fulfill my promises to you, but remember what I did with Sarah. And you're going to stretch out your tent. And you're going to have children you didn't know you had so many children. That's the first image. The second image is in verses 4 to 8. It reads like this. Fear not, this is a different image. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. What are you seeing in verses 4 to 8? In verses 4 to 8, what you should be seeing now is a wife and a widow. A wife and a widow. And we've got terms used like ashamed, confounded, disgraced, reproached. A woman who feels like or thinks she's been divorced. So you've got this wife, this widow in verses 4 to 8. Not a barren woman now. The image has shifted. It's an abandoned woman in verses 4 to 8. This is a picture of Israel and their history. 
We've moved on now from Abraham and Sarah to the nation of Israel and their life under the law of Moses. Israel under the law of Moses was ashamed in their youth. Israel as a nation started off where? Not in the promised land. They were slaves in Egypt. Ashamed in her youth. Israel in Egypt. Slaves. Israel as a nation is reproached and disgraced because they're going to be marched into captivity by the Babylonians. They started off in slavery. Then in Isaiah's day, he's telling them, you're going to be marched into captivity by the Babylonians. That's reproached. That's disgraced. So under the law, it never looks very good. Slavery in Egypt, exiled to Babylon, and Israel's wondering, are we abandoned? Have we been forsaken by the Lord our God? And the answer in verses 4 to 8 is a resounding no. The Lord hasn't divorced you. You can't produce a bill of divorcement. He's made promises to you. They aren't dependent on Mosaic law. They're dependent on unconditional promises he's made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And so he hasn't abandoned them as a nation. In uh, chapter 50, 54, verse 5, it says, uh, Your maker is your husband. He hasn't abandoned you. He's your husband. He's your maker. He's your redeemer. God's going to see this through because it's dependent on him. It's not dependent on you. That's the second image. The third image, verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. We've got Noah, we've got a flood. And we've got God's promise after the flood, I will never again cause a worldwide flood to destroy all humanity except for these eight people that I've saved. And I've got a question or a statement. Is the covenant with Noah a step backward in the progression of covenants? The first image of a barren wife represented Abraham and Sarah. The second image of an abandoned wife represents Israel and its history. But now we've gone back from Israel's history under Old Testament law. We've gone further back than Abraham and Sarah. We're all the way back to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. How did we get all the way back? Why bring up Noah now instead of move forward? And the answer is partly because, because Isaiah, the Lord is paralleling. In Isaiah's day, there was a worldwide flood. But I saved people and I gave a promise it would never happen again. For Israel, they're going to be sent into exile. But I give you a promise. I will never whittle it down like that again. You will always be my people. I will never take you down to such a small number that a few of you dwindle and are carried off into Babylon. It will never be like that again. My my everlasting love and faithfulness and favor to you is just like the promise that I gave to Noah. The last image is in verses 11 to 17. I'm not going to read all those verses again because I'm running out of time. But in those verses, we have an eternal city. We have a renewed order. It's how the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 21. 
that all of this is working toward, it, go, it starts all the way back with a promise God made to Noah, a promise of grace. It will be realized and culminated in this eternal city, which is described in Isaiah 54, a renewed order, which is also described in Revelation chapter 21. God's faithfulness will prevail. God will see to it that his purposes of redemption are accomplished. He has never, he's never wavered from his purposes. He's never detoured from his purposes. But he is doing it in such a way that he receives the most glory because he keeps working these miraculous outcomes in what looks like hopeless circumstances. What are your comments and questions? Because I'm done with 54. I know, right? Joe Ash. Yeah, and, that spurned my thought too, and because the covenant with Noah isn't with Abraham and his, with Israel, the covenant with Noah is with all the earth. And who's going to benefit from God's unconditional covenants? It's not just Abraham, it's not just Israel, it's the church, it's the Gentiles, it's all of God's creation is going to benefit. So it kind of enlarges the scope that just like Abraham is going to bring blessing to many nations, Noah's family brings grace to all the earth as well. Because the earth will never face the kind of flood that Noah faced. Good point. Somebody else? Somebody else?